0: If you would open your Bibles to the book of 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Let's pray. Father, we ask this morning that you would help us to understand some of the deeper things that Paul is getting into and explaining to his people. We pray, O Lord, that you would help us to receive your word with great joy, that you would grant us again understanding and the ability to comprehend how truly marvelous and wonderful and fantastic our relationship is with you. What a wonderful gift you've given to us. We do thank you and ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. 1 Corinthians 12, beginning in verse 7. Apportions to each one individually as he wills. We are now at the part where he talks about various kinds of tongues and the interpretation of tongues. I'll let you know that we won't go into a whole lot of detail on that because the detail on that's coming up much later. Not much later, well, it depends on how fast we go, but we're going to get to it in chapter 14. And so uh, we're going to deal with it at that point. But basically, let me just kind of give you the, basis, the basics of this, and that is this. When the scripture speaks of tongues, it refers to the ability to speak an unlearned living language. Now, we'll, we'll, we will go through later what other people say that it is, and le- then look at the Bible so that we can see how we know that they are incorrect in what they say, and that this is the proper and the right definition. But for right now, that's what it is. And let me read to you from the book of Acts, chapter 2, beginning in verse 7. This would be the day of Pentecost, and it says, And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in his own native language? Perthians and Medes and Elamites, and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Pergia and Pamphylia, Egypt and parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene, and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians, we hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. So here we see this manifestation of the gift of tongues where these men, considered by many to be Galileans, meaning that they were uneducated, or had the ability to preach the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ in all of these various languages that they had never studied, they had never learned, and these individuals understood, these individuals speaking fluently in their language and understand what was being said the interpretation of tongues was simply the ability to translate an unlearned known language expressed in the assembly of believers and again as to why all that would take place we will get to that Uh, but let me read to you just briefly from first Corinthians 14 where we have an example of this in verse 26 which says what then brothers when you come together each one has a hymn a lesson revelation a tongue or an interpretation let all things be done for building up. If any speak in a tongue, let there be only two or th- or at the most three, and each in turn, and let someone interpret. But if there is no one to interpret, let's each, let each of them keep silent in the church and speak to himself and to God. So those are illustrations of those gifts uh, that were manifested by the early church. And as I said before, we will get into a great deal of detail about that because a, there's a lot of confusion about that uh, today and a lot of misuse of a bad understanding of Scripture. And as a result, there are those who believe that uh, either they don't have the Spirit of God or there are those who believe that maybe God has rejected them. Uh, there are those that believe that they will never be able to achieve some kind of higher spiritual status, whatever that may happen to be. Uh, and there are those who maybe in arrogance, maybe not, think that they are better than others because they have certain abilities, uh, and so we just need to make sure we have a good grasp of all of those things so that we are no longer misinformed and we understand how it is that God is dealing with each of us. But looking once again at 1 Corinthians chapter 12, where our focus will be today is on verses 11 through 13, and it reads this way, and all of these are powered or empowered by one and the same spirit. Who apportions to each one individually as he wills. For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made the drink of one spirit. So we're going to kind of back up and let me kind of lay out the context of the various chapters. And then we're going to get back into specifically uh, verse 13 is where we're going to be spending most of our time. So chapter 12 clearly makes the point that there are many or there are various spiritual gifts. All of them have their source and purpose in the one spirit, which is the Holy Spirit of God. You're going to hear me use this phrase a lot. This is not individual with me. uh, Of the several different commentaries that I've been looking at. One individual is using this, and he says this. Paul launches upon his claim of variety in unity and unity in variety. He continues to pound that theme into the minds of the believers in Corinth. This was clearly a very diverse church in many ways. Economic status uh, when it came to the various races that were meeting there. Their knowledge of scripture went from those who were completely ignorant to those who were very well versed in the Old Testament. It was just a very diverse church, and they had enough problems to prove that. Uh, They were divided in many areas. And so Paul really is pushing then that there is variety in unity and unity in variety. The idea that the ideal Christian worship, which is truly spiritual, uh, was always the result of doing things decently and in order. Again, he states in verse 4, that there are various gifts. He goes on to enumerate nine gifts here, gifts of the Spirit, as manifestations of the Spirit, again, for the common good. Uh, that's always the purpose of gifts, is for us to be able to um, contribute to the spiritual, physical, emotional well-being of other believers in the assembly. That is what gifts are for. It, it, we can never stress that enough. There's, uh, there are even those today who, who say that uh, they may practice certain gifts for their own self-edification. That's not a biblical place to be, and that's not what we are to do. Uh, God purposely has created us as human beings and gifted the church in such a way so that we absolutely need each other. For us to flourish as believers, we need other believers, period. This is all there is to it and we need to make sure that we remember that we are, as you read through the Bible, it is clear that the Christian life is to be lived in community. So we are to strive, all these things we hear about, what we're trying to to do as individual believers and be like Christ and pursue righteousness, absolutely we are to do that. But we are never to do that in a sense as a lone wolf. We're always to do that in a community. In some places that community is rather small, maybe because of persecution uh, and various kinds of reasons. But the bottom line is is that it's definitely to be done in a community. That is why you will hear individuals who will proclaim that those who want to stay home and just watch church on TV, I guess if you can do that if you're really sick, but that is not the ideal. We need to be with each other, period. We can't give excuses. Um, I'm reminded of my old football coach. He told us one time that uh, if we weren't at practice, we better be dead or in the hospital. Um, it basically meant there'd be no excuses. Now, we're not going to go to that extreme. However, it just doesn't take much sometimes for us to stay away from each other. It's a sign that something is wrong with us spiritually. doesn't mean that you've fallen away from the Lord, but you're on the wrong path. One of the very sad statistics is coming out of this whole, whatever you think about the lockdown thing that's going on and the new lockdown thing that's going on, one of the sad things that's coming, come out of that is it is estimated by many different types of academics across the board, and, I, and I'm not sure the exact number, and I, you, you're, they're speculating, so they can't really come up with an exact percentage, but uh, approximately somewhere between 30-35% of those who've stopped coming to church because of the lockdowns, coronavirus, etc., will never come back. Something's wrong with that. We can get at all different reasons why, but the bottom line is, is that God has incorporated the church to be together. We actually need each other uh, as, as believers. And so we need to keep that in mind. So again, uh, Paul concludes back in chapter 12 of Corinthians, he concludes uh, by affirming in verse 11 that all these are inspired, again, by the one and the same spirit. Basically, what? Variety and unity and unity in variety. A message that, again, this division-riddled Corinthian church needed to hear and it needed to be sounded very strongly. Then, when you work your way, in verses 12 through 27, Paul works back from the various manifestations of the Spirit, again, to the original act by which the Corinthians were incorporated into the body of Christ. Why? His purpose was to show variety in unity and unity in variety. In the human body, which is basically or essentially one there are many members, and they are differentiated by their functions. We all know that analogy, that you know the, body, the whole body isn't an ear. The whole body isn't an eye. Right, we have hands and fingers and toes, and all these things work really incredibly well together. Uh, if you've ever read, even on the surface, any kind of uh, um, zoological types of material that talk about the differences between animals, in particular apes and human beings, that make a big deal about our thumb. And how important a thumb is and what, that, and what makes us unique when it comes to our thumb. Uh, you may not know this, but uh, one of the ways that in, in ancient times, that would be like during King David and those types of things, uh, if, you, if one army came in and conquered another army, sometimes what they would do for entertainment is they would take the general or the king, whoever they would capture, they would keep them alive. And then as they would be sitting around a big bonfire drinking, which is what they normally would do, uh, they would take these men and they would cut off their big toe. And then make them walk around. Just, you know, the big toe. For some of us it's like this, some is like this, but it's just one digit. Take that off and see what happens to your balance and ability to do anything. And they would just laugh at these individuals. And when they got tired, they'd go ahead and kill them. Uh, but the idea is, is that we need all of these different parts of our bodies to be able to function the way that God has designed the body to function. So again, these believers, all of them, were part of the body of Christ into which all were admitted by what? One baptism of the Spirit, who consists of a variety of members that again are differentiated by the diversity of their functions. Uh, So again, the central teaching is clear. There is variety in unity and unity in variety. Then when you get down toward the end, down in verse 28, it says, and God has appointed in the church first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then miracles, then gifts of healing, helping, administrating in various kinds of tongues, are all apostles, are all prophets, are all teachers, do all work miracles, do all possess the gifts of healing, do all speak with tongues, do all interpret, but earnestly desire the higher gifts. So even though here he does rank these gifts or the manifestation of the gifts as far as importance, he never says that one is important, the other one is somehow unimportant. It may be less to a degree But it's never unimportant. And uh, again, the idea here is that there's still to be this unity. And so there's no room then for any kind of arrogance or pride because of what particular function or gift you may have in the body of Christ. There's just to be none of that. In the end, we have our function. We have to answer to God for how we are to carry out our functions and our abilities. And we need to make sure that that we are doing so really in in a humble way. Uh, And that we ensure that we're really truly seeking to serve God and others in that way. So the apostle moves to the various ministries. Again, they all proceed from the one spirit. They are exercised in the one body. They are appointed in the church in a definite order and a scale of service by God. Once again, that theme that we've been talking about stands out consistently. Paul then encourages the cultivation of what he calls the higher gifts and at the same point or same time points the way to what? What we call love or agape. We're very familiar with that term. It's 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 the kind of love that God loves us with. And you've heard sermons before where they go into the various Greek words of love. And this is always viewed as the highest uh, form of love. And so he wants to point the way to us that apart from this kind of love, all the gifts will fail. And what they are supposed to accomplish, they will fail. That means that person will fail in the exercise of their gift if they do not exercise and possess this kind of love for God and for each other. Uh, and he says this, this love is going to endure even when these gifts have vanished. So if you look at 1 Corinthians 13, which I am not going to read at this time because we're going to be dealing with that later, but here Paul enunciates his clear conviction which is what he considers the superiority of love he considers the nature of love he also once again considers the permanence of love that is the thing that he wants them to understand and to focus on even in the midst of this discussion of all these spiritual gifts and marvelous things that God has done in the church and is doing in the church love then is the unifying factor which gives meaning and wholeness to the various gifts, functions and ministries of the one spirit in the one body. So once again, there is no room for a hierarchy uh, within church or with e- even what, what I call parachurch organizations. That's not original with me. That's a, a para-church simply means a ministry that's come alongside the church. Uh, they have exploded here uh, in America. There's, just, there's thousands of them. They started back uh, primarily, not singly in the 50s, but that's when the explosion began. The problem with many is in their ministries there can be a hierarchy and you begin to lose accountability. They at times either replace the church or just ignore the church and it's just it's a problem. Some of them started because the church is failing to reach out to certain groups. I absolutely understand that. And these groups do have a place in Christian ministry. But there is no room within Christianity, within, within Christendom, for there to be a lack of love for each other. It, it, it must be that way, uh, period. And if it's not, there's going to be difficulties. So basically, as Paul writes then, once he's placed those who are, quote unquote, spiritual, those who have gifts, which is all believers, in their ideal relationship to the whole body in love, Paul then concludes the section with a very practical, very down to earth treatment of a problem which plagued the Corinthians. Namely, that was the exercise of the speaking gifts. And that's when you get into all the details of 1 Corinthians 14. But again, in that chapter, Paul still encourages the pursuit of all spiritual gifts as long as love is the ultimate aim and the higher spiritual gifts are recognized and sought. Then, Paul gives an instructive comparison of tongues and prophecy and lays down principles of guidance in the use of of both the manifestations of the Spirit. And then he concludes this whole section by urging decorum and order in the use of all spiritual gifts. Again, why? For the edification of the entire worshiping community. Paul is never going to allow for anyone to ever be overlooked, period. He wants to make sure that everyone is encouraged. He wants to make sure that everyone is loved. He wants to make sure, he doesn't have, he never promotes a victim mentality that any of us are ever allowed to feel sorry for ourselves. That's not in there. But there's a responsibility that is laid on us to ensure that no one is overlooked. To make sure that we are truly treating each other the way that we ought to treat each other as believers. So then, in light of all of that, go back to verse 13 of 1 Corinthians 12, because we need to understand the meaning of verse 13, which is, For in one spirit, we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. Again, that's important because remember that during this time, all of your other religions never dealt with any kind of requirements of those who believed in those religions. If you went to the Temple of Venus, they did not have a seminar the next week on how to have a good marriage. It's, they didn't do that. If you, if you worshipped Jupiter or Mars or Bacchus, the god of wine, no one was concerned with how you treated anyone else in business. No one was concerned about how you raised your children. There was never an issue. That was just any more talked about. Christianity and Judaism, what they had, was completely different in every way, which was kind of very intriguing to many people. That's why, again, as we went through Acts, you notice that when there, uh, we have Paul and Peter speaking at the synagogue, there's always a very mixed audience. You had these Gentiles who were coming because they had just never seen a religion that, that had lectures dealing with every practical, everyday matters of life where God spoke on all these issues. And they wanted to hear the way of righteousness, really. They wanted to understand truth. So when it comes to this then... Uh, we need to recognize that the recognition of Jews and Greeks, slaves and free, those, the way that we would label people remained intact in all the religions. Within the church, all of those were of no importance. Everybody was viewed the same as believers, regardless of your income, your state, or your status. Whether you were slave, or whether you were slave that owned slaves, or you just owned slaves, whatever, it didn't matter. If, if you were in Christ, you were one In Christ, And those distinctions then were, in a sense, melted away. It becomes kind of complicated. Our world doesn't quite grasp and understand that. We'll spend a little bit of time dealing with that, not a whole lot, because people get get into some of these things at times and really freak out when it comes to what the Bible says, but there's no need to. Uh, The Bible is an incredible book and really gives us the most amazing wisdom that we need to be able to get along and work these things out. So what Paul is doing here then in verse 13 is this, is he is using baptize as a metaphor. It, it's a spiritual act that he's talking about. It, it, we, what we can picture in our mind because this is drawn from really the ritual of water baptism. And John the Baptist did the same thing. When, when Luke talks about spirit baptism, Jesus talks about baptism of the cross. They were all using that as a metaphor. The, the Greek word, and there's a couple of them, but the, one of the main ones is baptizo. You can clearly see where we get the word baptize from. It really only has two meanings, one of two meanings. One is literal, and the other one is always used to speak of spiritual transformation. It is always talking about that which puts the believer in Christ, and uh, and which is the effect of receiving the gift of the Holy Spirit. So Paul here then is speaking in metaphorical language of spiritual realities and relationships, and not of any kind of a ritual act. He's not speaking of water baptism. Then when he says, and all were made to drink uh, of one spirit, made to drink has basically two basic meanings. It means either to give drink, or it may mean to flood, or to water, or to irrigate. Now, I'm not going to spend any time on this, but I will will mention that there will be some commentaries you may read. There are some churches that teach that somehow out of this verse, they come up with this idea that there is what they call a second work of the spirit. Now, they may not always use that term, but the idea is, is that there is, and some of them call it a baptism of the Spirit, thinking of it being something that comes later uh, in your walk with the Lord. Again, some call it a second work of grace. But the idea is, is that later in your Christian life, at some point, whether it's a matter of weeks, months, or years, the Spirit of God does something new in your life, something new and transformative. And, that, and, and in some cases, the idea is to seek after that so that you then can be, and I'm using this kind of terminology, I'm not, so I'm not really mocking them, but the idea is so that you can become maybe some kind of a super Christian or you're now really walking with the Lord. You know how we use the word really for all kinds of things. You, you're now really walking with the Lord. You're now really spiritual. But the idea is, is that there's a different level. And that you need to have this second work of God to get to that level. Okay, The Bible doesn't know anything about that. It's just not in the Bible. But again, we'll take a look at it a little bit later um, when we try to come, come clear on some of these things that people do. But some of them go back to this verse and basically say that there's this baptism of the Spirit and then there's this second act of drinking, even though they, obviously, they, they normally don't use that terminology, but there's the drinking of the one Spirit and they make that to be the second thing. So Uh, That's really not a thing. I'm not, I am ignoring that on purpose, but I'm not trying to pretend it's not there or that people think that. I just want you to know that that we will get to that and talk about that some, hopefully to relieve you of this idea, if you've been exposed to this, that you're missing out as a Christian because that's sometimes what happens. We go through times of despair. We may go through a time of maybe spiritual dryness. Uh, We meet someone who is, let's say, very energetic in the Lord And what takes place is they they begin to talk about a second work of God, and we start wanting that. We we want that experience, or we want that state uh, for ourselves. And sometimes, maybe often, we begin to not think the way we ought to. We don't think biblically. We don't think in biblical categories. We move away from the scripture, and we're using something else as really being the final authority. And that can get us into trouble. It uh, doesn't mean that you're going to engage in any kind of sin, necessarily. I don't mean that. But it can get us into trouble in the sense that, at that when that pursuit begins to take place, we actually, for many, begin to drift away from the Lord. And you're, and you're going to begin to lose your sense of assurance and the sense of peace and a lot of other things that we have with God. So it's something that we really can't ignore. Uh, we want to make sure that we have a good grasp of what it means to be a Christian. And how do we grow and mature? And again... We're going to see that as Paul deals with some of these, these uh, issues. So, again, many, as I've already said, individuals try to conclude that there is another sense in which somehow we uh, are, are going to have a, a second work of God in our lives, and that is untrue. When it comes to this phrasing, made the drink, I do think the, def- the second definition is the correct one for this that he's talking about flooding or irrigating. And it's kind of a, a metaphor of, of a flood. Being poured out on a land that's parched or been in famine, and the idea of soaking that up—it's um, it's the metaphor of water flooding upon a parched ground. Uh, the uh, phrase that's used in the Old Testament is the golden age to come. Turn to to the Book of Isaiah for just a moment. We'll just take a quick look at that, and then we'll go back to um, to our passage here in First Corinthians, Isaiah chapter thirty-two. The focus will be verse fifteen, but I'm going to read verse begin with verse fourteen. And read through 17. Isaiah 32, beginning in verse 14. For the palace is forsaken, the populous city deserted. The hill and the watchtower will become dens forever. A joy of wild donkeys, a pasture of flocks, until the spirit is poured upon us from on high and the wilderness becomes a fruitful field and the fruitful field is deemed a forest. Then... Justice will dwell in the wilderness, and righteousness abide in the fruitful field, and the effect of righteousness will be peace, and the result of righteousness, quietness, and trust forever. So in verse 15, after speaking of desolation on Judah, Isaiah describes a time of future blessing on the land and on the people. That time, I believe, is what we would call the Millennial Kingdom and it will come about after the holy spirit is poured out on israel from on high and then all those things he mentions are going to take place. So as we think about what paul has said here in 1 corinthians chapter 12 verse 13, let me just kind of throw four things out and then we'll dig a little further into what's going on here. Number 1, every believer who is a member of the body of christ became such by being baptized in the Holy Spirit. All right, so that's happened to all of us who are believers. You've been baptized by the Holy Spirit. Secondly, anyone who is not baptized by the Holy Spirit is not a member of the body of Christ and you're not a Christian. Now, that's important. And we will get to, again, some more supporting verses through time. Uh, but there are those who teach that you can become a believer. It's a small group. That you can become a believer and then you have to seek the Holy Spirit because you don't have the Holy Spirit. Romans makes it really clear where it says if you don't have the Spirit of God, you don't belong to God. Amen. All right, so we have the Spirit of God. And this, is, this should be extremely encouraging for those individuals who may, let's say naturally, just lack confidence in living in the world. I don't care what your past is, when you and I become true believers in Christ, you will never be rejected by God. He has sealed you with His Spirit until the day of redemption. That comes from the book of Ephesians. The Spirit of God does live in you permanently. It is not something that you necessarily can feel. In fact, maybe very few of us might even be, might feel it. I don't know what it would even feel like. But it's one of those things we accept by faith. Remember that when we speak of accepting things by faith, we're not accepting things by faith because there's zero evidence that we're just believing in in a sense, we're hoping it's true. Now it's based on what God has revealed in his word. That is a solid place for us to be. I am trusting what God says, and I know the Spirit of God lives in me, period. When I feel conviction of sin, I know what that is. That's the Spirit of God who lives in me. There are times we experience the joy of God or the peace of God that the Bible says surpasses human understanding. That is the work of the Holy Spirit in us. So there are times we may feel the effects of the Holy Spirit, but whether you feel that or not is of no consequence in the sense that it doesn't affect whether or not you possess the Holy Spirit of God, because it's not something that you went out and got, it's what God gave to you. and it takes place when, we've, when we are regenerated by the Spirit of God. So then, baptism in the Spirit must be something that every believer experiences at conversion. When you are converted, you are baptized by the Spirit of God into the body of Christ, and the Spirit of God indwells you. Therefore, there is no necessity, and I would say not even a possibility, for a second baptism, no matter how you describe it. Uh, And again, that's normally taught in Pentecostal-type circles. Uh, But again, we want to make sure that the Bible is always our final guide, and we will do that as we work our way through this. So when we continue to dig into, then, what is the baptism of the Holy Spirit? Uh, I've already mentioned, I think, enough things about the word baptizo. Uh, I don't want to go into it again. I do have a reference there in your notes concerning Isaiah 63, which talks about Jesus coming back really from the battlefield. This would be... Uh, um, I, I believe the battle of Armageddon, but that part doesn't matter whether you believe it or not, but it mentions that his blood, that his garments are dipped or splattered with blood. Uh, the idea there is that his garment is blood-drenched. Uh, and so, that, so, there, so there's a way to look at these words throughout the Bible and how they're used. Uh, and it's always, uh, when it's used metaphorically, it's always a very strong word. It's, it's never anything that is incidental. There's a book that is written by uh, Dr. James Dale where he talks, where the whole book's just on the word baptizo. And he, he talks about the two main meanings, the literal meaning and the secondary meaning that, we're, that we are looking at here. And he says this, he says, whatever is capable of thoroughly changing the character, state, or condition of any object is capable of baptizing that object. And by such change of character, state or condition, does, in fact, baptize it. We sometimes talk about being baptized, whether it's in sports or in business or whatever. Someone's doing something for the first time, and eh, we think they may not quite be ready yet for whatever. Say, well, something bad happens. Say, well, they've been baptized. The idea is that they're not going to be the same again. They've now been fully immersed in whatever's happening and... and you know, they've now experienced it and they, they can learn from it. They can move on. That's kind of the idea here. So when it speaks of the baptism then of the Holy Spirit is it is that which changes our character, our state, our condition. And so we have been baptized. So I'm going to read these off real quick and then we'll get into the details and we'll be finished. The Bible speaks of, and I'm, I can't remember if I have the references all in your notes or not. But the Bible speaks of a baptism unto repentance. It's Matthew 3. A baptism unto the remission of sins, Mark 4, Mark 1. A baptism unto the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Find that in Matthew 20. A baptism of Israel unto Moses, 1 Corinthians 10. A baptism that is brought about by the presence and the influence of the Holy Spirit in the believer's heart. That is the baptism of a believer into the body of Christ, which is the passage we're looking at today. So these baptisms that we're looking at here are not merely a dipping into something. They all present the state that you are immersed into as being permanent. When a believer is by the Spirit baptized into Christ, the thing most desired is that he shall never be taken out again. So let me finish with this. Number one, to be baptized unto repentance is to be brought under the influence of repentance. Not for a moment, but abidingly. We talk about believers that way even though we have repented of our sins and we believe in Christ, we have now entered into a life that it is the norm for us to repent of our sins. We're not we're not repenting of our sins so we can get saved again, because that is a once for all act done by God. But the idea is is that as we we become more like Christ, we become more sensitive about our sin, recognizing that we do sin and that we need to deal with that sin, and we know that it causes uh, strain in the relationship with us and the Father on our end, not on his end, and that it's displeasing to him, and so I repent of my sins as and that's part of the of the of the, I guess you say the, the path of moving forward in our lives as Christians. And so we've been baptized into uh, or unto repentance. Secondly, to be baptized unto the name of the triune God is to come under the power of God, not for a moment, but abidingly. I I place my trust in Christ I'm baptized by the Spirit of God I am now under the power of God I willingly want God to direct and lead me in my my path He tells me in the Word of God That's that's what He's going to be doing for me Uh, I want to be influenced by Him And He's going to influence me In fact, the Bible tells us That He is going to complete the work He started in us He doesn't ask us if you're going to help complete it He just says He's going to finish it he, he's going to make us like Christ. Probably goes better if we're cooperating, but the idea is that he's going to make us like his son Christ. I'm under the power of God. Thirdly, to be baptized unto Moses as Israel was by the agency of the cloud and the sea was to be brought under the leadership of Moses, which leadership had not been according, had not been according to him before, not for a moment, but abidingly. The idea usually, the analogy is being baptized unto Moses was Israel was brought under the, of the authority of Moses. He was always their authority. He was the mouthpiece for God. So again, the analogy then for us is that we are under the power of God. We are under the authority of God and we submit to the authority of God. To be baptized under Christ's death and resurrection is to become so identified with him in that death and resurrection that all of our values are secured, not for a moment, but eternally. When we, when we baptize someone by water, we talk about the idea that we are, I, we are publicly identifying ourselves with a death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. You know, going under the water is being buried with him, coming out of the water is rising from the dead. That's all symbolic for us, uh, representing what we are identifying with, with Jesus Christ. It's called a Christian baptism. Many religions baptize, but we, but we baptize in mean, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. We baptize Publicly identifying with the death, burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, and so that is and that is what's used by this. And, and so, as believers, all of us then uh, that have been baptized have confessed that publicly. That is what we believe, and that is what we what we live by. Christ's suffering of anguish was not a momentary dipping down into suffering. The baptism, which uh, which results from the advent of the Spirit into the heart. With his heavenly influence is not for a moment, but endures forever. So Christ then suffered, we could say in a sense, in eternity for us, because he's the eternal God. He didn't just, he wasn't playing a part in a movie, but he truly experienced anguish, suffering, torture, and death on our behalf. I am baptized by the Spirit into Christ. The influence of Christ in heaven then is that which endures on me, it endures on you forever. And so, and we should think about, as we live our lives as Christians, we should think about that. Think about the influence of Christ on my life. As I seek to become more patient with my family, as I seek to become more patient with other people, as I seek to express love, all those things we do very imperfectly. But we should be continually driven forward as we remember what Christ has done for us, what Christ has suffered for us, and that we are under the influence of Christ. He's not going to leave us alone. And we can thank God for that. To be placed in Christ by the baptizing agency of the Holy Spirit results in a new reality of relationship. When you and I are baptized by the Spirit of God, we are now placed in a brand new relationship with God himself. We had no relationship with God before except that we were his enemies. Now, being baptized by the Spirit, I am now brought in as His child. I am part of His family. He is my Heavenly Father. Christ is my brother. There is this brand new change in relationship. Again, we may feel nothing. It's a matter of fact. I believe by faith what the Word of God says, that I now have this relationship with Him. So it results in a new reality of relationship in which one is now blessed comes under the power and the headship of Christ. This position supplants the relationship that we call in the Bible of the first Adam and is itself a new organic union with the last Adam, the resurrected Christ. As we leave here this morning, I want your hearts to be encouraged as we think about this being baptized by the spirit of God. God did this for us. And we placed our faith and trust in Jesus Christ. God has baptized us into his body. We are now brought into this relationship. He is my head. He will always be there for me. He will never reject me. He will never turn his back on me. He will deliver me into the day of redemption where I will spend eternity with him. He will do this despite the way I live because he already knows I'm going to fail him more than once. You have already failed God this past week. You will fail God again next week. Hopefully, we will fail God less often as we grow as Christians. But if you think about it, it's no different than you and I have children. When we have kids, I will not ask you to raise your hands, but how many of you thought for a moment that when you had children, your children would never disobey? No one thinks that. Your children will never frustrate you. Your children will be perfect in every way. So if you already know in advance that your, ch- yeah, that your children, if you have children that are going to cause you heartache and grief and sleepless nights and all the rest, then why do you still have them? That makes no sense. Well, our love is stronger than that. We, we desire. We desire what? To be with those and spend time with those who what? are made in our image. And we love them. Regardless. We are made in the image of God. It is the heart of God. He desires to be with those who are made in his image. As imperfect as we are. He oversees that. He he overlooks that. He has brought us to himself through Christ. It's an amazing picture. Even for those who are, we would say, unfortunate, who have children who may be born who are, what, (laughs) deformed or lacking in any way do we then just say, oh, throw that one away? Now I know there are some countries that have already moved in that direction. And what do we think of that? We think there's a lack of understanding, a lack of love. Because most of us, maybe all of us here, regardless of how our children would turn out of the womb, we've already decided that we will love them no matter what. And we are willing to put up with whatever the deal is until the day they die or the day we die. Because we love them. God loves us with a love that is greater than that. Which, which I'm so grateful for. Because I would consider myself, though this is politically incorrect, I would consider myself one of God's retarded children. Alright? There are times the elevator does not go all the way to the top floor. It's embarrassing, but that is the truth. And I know for a fact, not because I'm lovable, but only because of what the Bible says, that he loves me regardless. And I am so, so thankful. And so I want us to be encouraged as we leave here this morning. If you are a believer in Christ, you have been baptized by his spirit into the body. And all these things we discussed belong to you. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we are so grateful. It's just so wonderful to read, Father, and to contemplate how it is that you love us. Father, when we think about all that you've done for us, even though we, we, we know that in a moment of time, we know that the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ took place really in a matter of days, this most important and impactful event was filled with incredible meaning because it was carried out by the infinite God. Father, we ask that as we think on these things, that the truth of these things will permeate our hearts and minds that it will sink deep into our psyche, that it will definitely affect us, Father, emotionally, as well as spiritually in every other way. We pray, Father, also that along with this, that even in our weakness, and we know that we're not as grateful as we ought to be, we pray that you would help us to be more grateful. Not, Lord, that we have to run around saying thank you all the time, but, Lord, that there would be a deep and abiding love for you, born from a heart that is just overwhelmed with gratefulness because of your incredible goodness to us. Father, we do know there may even be a few here today who they've never experienced that. They don't know Christ. They know about the gospel, but it's not a part of who they are. We pray, Father, that in your firmness and in your gentleness, you would convict them of their need of Christ And that you desire and long to be with those and to have a relationship with those who are made in your image. And that their sin must be dealt with. It must be corrected. And that you are not waiting for us to correct it because it cannot be done that way. but you are willing to correct all of it for us because of what you've done for us through Christ. I pray, Lord, you would help them to grasp the sense of that and they would trust you. So, Father, once again, we thank you. And we do ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.